Well, good morning to all of you guys. As always, it is a privilege to be able to uh, stand in this pulpit, be able to open up the Word of God. And, um, and I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and find your way back to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19 is where we're going to be at this morning. And by the way, my name is Luke, one of the pastors here, just in case you were visiting and I get a chance to introduce myself to you this morning. Now, as you are finding your way there, um, I want to point out, by God's grace, we are now officially halfway through the book of Philippians, as it is simply just broken up in our English Bibles. Uh, We have two more chapters to go um, after we finish today. And so far, um, it's been a, a, a wonderful book to walk through, and I hope it's been a blessing and an encouragement to all of you, as it has been to me. Now, if you are not familiar with the Bible, you're new to Bible study, that's going to be on page 981, is where chapter 2, starting in verse 19, picks up. Now, before we look at the Word, as always, I like to give a little bit of an introduction. Like, why are we looking at this particular passage this morning? Not simply because that's the next text of Scripture that we have to go through as we walk through this book, right, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but also why as a church, why do we want to actually pay attention to what the Word of God says this morning? And I want to remind you of something that we began when we first met in this building. And for those of you who are new uh, to the church, like we're, we're still kind of newbies when it comes to this particular building. Uh, we just moved in here at the, kind of the end of March, beginning of April. It was really our, our first Sunday in here, so we're still uh, new. We've only been in here for the last few months. Um, it already feels like home to me, and I'm hoping it's going to be our home for a long, long time. But one of the things, when we first moved into this building, and for those of you who recall, we, we actually began a sermon series called The Church when we started uh, meeting here to kind of just go over through of what is actually a church supposed to do, right, when they actually gather together, is I felt that it was necessary to not only preach through what does a church do, but specifically for Carson Valley Bible Church, what is our discipleship strategy? What does it mean when we say to come and worship with us or come and try to learn about Christ? What do we actually mean by that? How do we actually want to live out what we believe that God has actually given the church to do? Because the church actually has a mission. The church actually has a mission given by Jesus himself. And that mission is to make disciples. Of all nations, Jesus said. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's also known as not only the church's mission, but also known as the Great Commission, something that Jesus has actually committed the church to being about, right? We're not just here for the sake of we have nowhere else to be on Sunday morning, but we wanted to be here intentionally. So when we first started meeting in this building, I felt it was necessary to talk through what does that actually mean? And at really at the heart and the head and like even the hand, the level, I felt it was good for me to kind of start using the language because it really helped me, is I want to be a church that desires to follow Jesus and help other people do the same. So if you were trying to boil down, okay, what is the Great Commission? What does that actually mean? What is it, how does someone actually do that? How do we actually make disciples of all nations? Really, the overarching goal in that is simply to follow Jesus and help others do the same. So that's what we're doing this morning. 
And today, in our text in Philippians, I believe that we're actually seeing Paul desire the same thing. The same thing as he's writing to this young church in Philippi that's only about 10 years old at the the writing of this letter. And like every church, it has its issues. There's, There's areas in which it needs to be corrected. There's areas in which the church needs to be encouraged. And so Paul, what he's going to be doing here at the end of chapter 2, is he's actually going to start talking about how he's going to be sending two guys, two different individuals that are going to come visit the church in Philippi and actually be there for a certain amount of time. He's going to send two men, and these two men that we're going to learn about, their names are Timothy and Epaphroditus. And as you can see just from my title of my sermon, these are gospel encouragers, if you will. Gospel encouragers. And these two men have had a radical impact on the Apostle Paul. Have a radical impact on his own life and his ministry and his own devotions to Christ. These are men that have encouraged him in the gospel. And really they are personifying much of what Paul has been talking about the rest of chapter 2. Paul has been, if you haven't been with us, Paul has been basically encouraging this church to live out their salvation, to, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, showing the worthiness of the gospel, or, or to work out their salvation, to basically put on display of what God has been doing inside of them. And I believe the reason why Paul brings up these two men now is because they personify or embody much of what Paul has been encouraging every single Christian to be, and that is gospel encouragers, and that they are really living out the mission in which we have here, and that is to follow Jesus and help other people do the same. But as always, I need help to be able to preach this word. I need help from just the Holy Spirit. I need help from um, just you guys praying for me, and so I like to take time to just stop before I actually read the Bible and, and ask that you guys would pray for me. And as I do that, I also want to pray for you that just this would be a special time for us to gather. So if you could, go ahead and just bow your head and let's just pray for each other before we read the word. Well, Father, I thank you. I thank you for all the ways that you have been moving. You've been moving in this community. You've been moving in this church. You've been drawing people to yourself. Lord, just in an age and time where it's been so easy to be caught up with what I want. What's best for me? What does my own heart think? And rather, God, you've been moving and we've been asking the bigger questions. Well, what, is, what do you want? What does your heart look like? Because I know my heart can be filled with sin. It can be filled with selfishness. And so, God, I pray that just through your own word this morning that you would illuminate exactly what you have for us. That we would not only see these words as just a a letter written to a church thousands of years ago, but also timeless, spoken to us by the one and true God, and that we could see the word for what it is, and that is the word of God. God, I I pray for everybody in this room. I pray for our kiddos, um, for those who are not here, and for all the people who are struggling with different illnesses or celebrating weddings. God, I pray that you just be with us as a church this morning. In your wonderful and mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. 
All right, so hopefully enough time to find Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 is where we're going to start, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Let me go ahead and just read for us the word this morning. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who genuinely who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord shortly. I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. Now, thus far in the book of Philippians, Paul has been basically really encouraging the church, right? He's been praying for them. He's been extolling them. He's been exhorting them. He's been basically encouraging them in all the ways in which they not only have a Savior who was there at the very beginning, but has a Savior and a God who has began a good work in them and is going to bring it to completion. And as he's been encouraging them, he's also been commanding them. As we looked at the last couple of weeks, that he's been commanding them to work out their salvation, to work out what God has worked in. And Paul, because Paul knows that when you become a Christian, right, when you become a follower of Christ, and by the way, if you're not a Christian and quite not sure where you're at this morning, uh, you are welcome to be here. We're glad you're here. We'd love for you to listen in and, and understand why we believe the things we believe. But Paul knows this, that when you become a Christian, when you understand that when Jesus went to the cross, when he went to the hill of Calvary and died the death that he did, he did it not for his sake, but for ours. That he was a substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross. That he was dying in our place. And so when you become a Christian, when you believe that, when you believe that he was a savior, but also a lord, a king, that your works, that your life will follow suit that you will begin to do things in which Jesus has commanded you to do, not so that you would gain salvation, not that so that you would hopefully get Jesus to go on the cross for you, but you do it because he already has. You do it because he has already died in your place. He's already shown you love and mercy without you ever lifting a finger. In fact, the scripture paints a picture that you weren't just impartial to Christ, but you were an enemy of Christ when he died for you. So it should be encouraging for us to know that Jesus died for us while we were still enemies. But by understanding what Jesus has done for us on the cross, then we actually get to live out that salvation. We get to live out just the glory of what we have in Christ. And we get to live out in a certain way. And what Paul is doing, I think, in this section is he's highlighting these two men. He's highlighting them as really like trophies of grace. 
lifting them up and saying, these two men have been saved by God. These two men have not only understood that, but they have bought into, they want to live out their lives for the sake of others too. They want to respond to what God has done inside of them. And so he, he simply elevates them and honors them in such a way that should be encouraging for us all. It should be a good reminder for us all too. Because here's the truth, church. We are meant actually to live out the Christian life with one another. You're not meant to live it by yourself. You weren't designed for that. You weren't designed to kind of be a lone ranger Christian. You can just kind of do it on your own and, and maybe show up to things when you want. But rather, if you've been saved by God, you've also been saved into a family. And so Paul is encouraging what it looks like then for us to live out this community, to, to live in the community which God has saved us into and be able to display to one another what does it mean to actually follow Christ. D.A. Carson, he's a, he's a New Testament scholar, he's a pastor of theology, he's a Canadian, um, which I love listening to him preach and I encourage you to listen to him when you get a chance. Uh, but in his commentary, he points out that Christian character right, reflecting or working out your salvation is often caught by others, if not more than when it is taught by others. Basically saying that it's just as important to live out your salvation as it is to teach about salvation. That it's important for us to actually lift up one another and say, hey, this is what a, a life that is responding to Christ looks like. And so Paul is introducing these two men as those examples as those trophies of grace and the impact in which Paul's saying he, they've had on me and I think that they're going to have this impact on you. So I'm sending them back to you. And one last thing before I kind of unpack exactly what these two men did to deserve kind of this recognition by Paul and what they will continue to do is, is I want to point out that everything in which we see these men do, it's not radical, right? It's not it's not like a, a super Christian, right? Or a professional Christian. Because in our culture today, we love to gravitate towards that sensational, right? To the, to the over-the-top preaching or the, the, the mighty martyrdoms that come for, for some to live um, to the glory of Christ, right? We love to elevate those radical examples of following Christ, and we should. We should do that. But sometimes when we do that, we forget about the ordinariness of, of actually living a light in light of the gospel. We forget that the church does not revolve around one gift or one personality, right, or one ministry. That in fact, the church revolves around all of us. That it, in, through Christ being the center, we all have roles in which we can encourage each other in the gospel. And oftentimes when we ordinate or elevate the non-ordinary or we elevate the sensational, you know, just a regular church attender or a regular church member feels as if the work that they do for Christ or the way that they live out their Christian life is, is really secondary or it's like the JV team of Christianity because we have professionalized, I think, much of Christianity and it's impacting many of us that we feel as if the pastor is the one who does the work of the ministry and not all of us. And I think what we see here, church, is by Paul talking about these two men is that that's not the case. 
that we are all called to be gospel encouragers amongst one another. So in our time, the rest of our time this morning, we're going to just look at, okay, what, did, what made them gospel encouragers then? Right? What, is, what were they actually doing that, that made them stand out in Paul's mind or in such a way that he wanted to elevate them? What was the, the ordinary things that they were doing that Paul says, I need to send them so they do that amongst you? So look at verse 19. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. When Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered on by news of you. For I have no one like him. For I have no one like him. Now, who is Timothy? Timothy was a young man who, if you've read through the book of Acts, you'll notice that Paul actually met Timothy around Acts chapter 16. When Paul was going out and planting churches, he actually met this young man named Timothy. And it was actually right before the church in Philippi got started. And so, Timothy is not a name that this church would not be uh, recognized amongst them. That Timothy was actually a, a household name to this church. One that actually helped this church begin. But Paul points out Timothy to them, not so they, they could say, oh, we've never heard of him. But Paul wants to recognize how special Timothy really is. And that's why he says in verse 20 that there's no one like him. And why is there no one like him? What does the text say, church? It says there's no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And I think this is where we see that first attribute. What does it mean to be a gospel encourager? It means to have compassion. It means to have compassion for the people of God. It means to have compassion for the church itself. That Timothy loved the church. That he had great concern for them. He had great concern for their lives, for the way that they worshiped, for all the things that were going on, that they were not indif- he was not indifferent to the church, which many of us can be, right? If we're being honest, sometimes there's days where we just don't care. But Timothy, it says that he cared. He had a genuine concern for your welfare. In so much, if you look down at verse 21, it says, for they all seek their own interests, but Timothy, not those of, Timothy had an interest of Jesus Christ. So he, he seemed to love the church in a way that actually Jesus loved the church. Now that's special. Because what ways does Jesus love the church? In the way that he would actually die for the church. That he would do everything in his power to serve the church. And that's exactly what Jesus did throughout his life. So to be a gospel encourager is to have one of compassion for the church. It's that to look not only for your own maybe selfish interests, but willing to serve the church in the way that Jesus served the church. Right? Had an others-focused mentality, if you will. Now, <clears throat> I think Paul is also saying that Timothy's heart, when it reflects the interests of Jesus Christ, that there's this aspect where Paul or Timothy wanted to make sure that this church was not becoming inward-focused, which is a temptation of every single church, by the way. That every single church has to fight this temptation to only care about what goes on inside of its walls or only cares about what's going on in the lives of its members or only cares what will meet the preferences of this congregation. Now, all of those things are important. Don't get me wrong on that. But there's also an aspect in, when we see this from Jesus himself that he was always others-focused too, those outside of the fold of God, that he wanted to make sure that they knew that there's not one person 
that is not welcomed inside the doors of Christ's kingdom. There's not one person in which Jesus cannot save. There's not one person that has run too far based off their life or what they've done in which Jesus cannot redeem and bring back to them. I think it's an important aspect that Timothy has in his own concern for the church, that the church would have this healthy direction. Now, the second attribute that we see, if you look at verse 22 of a gospel encourager, is one of companionship, one of companionship. Let me read verse 22. It says, But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served, he has served with me in the gospel. So Paul basically says, you know, Timothy, the one I'm sending to you, not only does he care about the church, but I want you to know that he, he's really special to me. He's like a son to me. He's been around me. We've been together for a long time, which I think highlights that part of being a gospel encourager church is to have companionship with one another, right? Timothy was not literally related to Paul, but there was a connection between the two that, they, that Paul says, he's like a son to me. He's been around me. He's heard me. We've, we've done things together. He's important to me. And this is really important for us to get that one of the greatest things that you can do for the life of the church, if you really want to be a gospel encourager, if you will, is simply to be around. Have the ministry of presence. Be faithfully present with one another. That makes a lot of difference, church. It makes more difference than you could ever know. That when you're present, maybe making time to sit down with somebody, making time to serve with another person, do ministry, to be there in times of celebration, be there in times of mourning, that it will have an impact on other people. In fact, one of my greatest privileges as your pastor is, is, is I get to be encouraged by all of you in such a special way. And, and I don't really have time necessarily to, to tell you that on every single Sunday. But I will assure you that there is people inside of this church that I don't care if you say a word when you come to this building. I don't care if you do anything just you being here encourages me greatly. It absolutely encourages me when I see you faithfully just wanting to be alongside me and others and be a part of the worship gathering. It really is encouraging. And so Paul is saying that Timothy was serving him in the gospel by simply being around. And he can't wait for Timothy now to go and do this with other people which is the call on all of us. That part of making a disciple is being around one another. And church, you know this, but yet how big of a struggle is this compared to anything else in our culture? It's easy for us to be at home all the time, right? It's easy, us to, easy for us to lock ourselves in, to think that, you know, I've had too long of a week. I can't go to group, or I can't go to worship on Sunday, or I can't be there. I can't make that phone call. I can't respond to that text message. I can't reach out. I'm just too busy. I got too much going on. And I know that there's times where that happens. But I want to encourage all of us that the ministry of presence will make a big deal. Will make a big deal. Personally, I can tell you that the people that have made the greatest impact on my life are the ones that have committed to being a part of it. The ones that have made room maybe to have those long conversations or have been around enough that we can work 
things through of maybe what we believe or you know, how these things work out, how to be a godly parent, how to be a godly husband. All of that takes time. It takes time. And what Paul is saying is Timothy was committed to being around me. And he was committed to showing me what union with Christ looks like in the long haul. And I pray as a church that we would be filled with gospel encouragers that are wanting to do the exact same thing. And on a, on just a different note too, I want you to notice that when Paul is saying that he's sending Timothy and he's sending Timothy because he's one of his best, there's no one like him. As a church, what that means is there might be a time where we have to send out the best from among us for the sake of the gospel. That there might be a time where we have to send out those who we love and cherish immensely. But when it comes to furthering the proclamation of the gospel, we, we might have to send them out. And it's going to be at great loss for us, but it's going to be a great gain for somebody else. I know that, and I've been a part of, of churches that have had to send out people, had to say those gospel goodbyes. And they're really hard if you don't have the, the notion and kind of that mentality already that that day might come. So that's gospel encourager number one, Timothy, right? He's full of compassion and he's also a companion. Now gospel encourager number two, Epaphroditus. What do we learn about him? Well, in verse 25, Paul says that he thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Now, like Timothy, Epaphroditus was also not a, a new name for the church in Philippi. In fact, it was, Epaphroditus actually came from the church in Philippi uh, to Rome to visit Paul. What we know um, later in, the, in chapter 4 is at some point before the writing of this letter, the church in Philippi wanted to serve Paul. That Paul had this need, this financial need, in order to continue his mission of planting churches and training pastors, that he needed some money to do that. He needed some money to basically be able to have the terms of house arrest so he could still write letters like this even while he was in prison. And so the church in Philippi decided to take it upon themselves to have this, this big collection, this big giant offering in order to support Paul. Now, I don't know if, you know, they asked for volunteers or Epaphroditus simply got nominated, but what occurs is Epaphroditus was part of the team that went to take the money that the church in Philippi raised all the way to Rome, which is about an 800-mile journey from Philippi. And by the way, there's nowhere in this text that says Epaphroditus was a pastor or a deacon or had any kind of formal role in the church. It sounds like he went because he simply loved Christ and he loved the proclamation of the gospel and he believed in the mission of the church to plant churches and to train disciples, to train pastors. And so he went. If you look at verse 26 you will see that at some point in this journey in which Epaphroditus was going to the church in, in Rome or going to go visit um, Paul in Rome, rather, that he got sick. He was very ill. Uh, so ill that he was close to death, Paul says. In so much that he actually has to point out that God had to do something miraculous to save him, that God had mercy on him, and that's why he didn't die. So God had mercy on him. But even in his sickness, do you notice the heart of Epaphroditus? 
Do you see that, that he was concerned, that the church was concerned about him? And that's one of the reasons why Paul is actually going to send him back so the church could be comforted that Epaphroditus has healed from whatever illness that he had. And what a, what a model that is for us. Because for how many of us, when there's times of trial or when there's times of sickness, if you will, it's really easy for us to turn inward, right? It's really easy for us to just think simply about ourselves. What do, what do I need at this moment? What's going to help me? But yet, here, Epaphroditus says, I don't, I don't really care about myself. I'm, care, I'm concerned about the church. I'm concerned about my friends, my family, that they would still know that God is still on his throne, that God has done something. And so Paul's saying, I need to send you back, Epaphroditus. But for the sake of time, what I want to do is I want to highlight what we see in verse 25 and some more characteristics of this gospel encourager that Epaphroditus was. These roles or identities in which we see in verse 25. And what are those roles and identity? Well, we see that he was a brother. We see that he was a fellow worker. He was a soldier. We see that he was a messenger and a minister to my need. So let's walk through those. Because what does it mean to be all of those? First, a gospel encourager then is part of the family. Right? Paul calls him a brother. Right? He's a brother in the faith. He's a part of the household of God. If it was you know, a, a, a sister in the faith coming you know, to, to Paul, he would have said that she's my sister. And it wasn't because Paul had like, forgotten his name. He's like, oh, you know, my brother. He was saying, no, he's a brother. He's my brother. There's an intimate. He's like, I acknowledge that he's, he's part of my family. He's a part of the household of God. There's intimacy there. That for us as a church, that we can be as close to one another as we are to our physical relatives. That's what the gospel can do. Is it can take people who we have no business hanging around with otherwise. But because of the gospel, we can approach them and live with them like family members who love for, each other, love for you know, one another dearly. It's a part of the language that Paul uses throughout the New Testament. But we also see what, that he's a worker. He's not just a brother, but he's a worker, a fellow worker. Now, when Epaphroditus got to Philippi, and this letter was being wrote, maybe this is the first time right, he's hearing what Paul actually had wrote, written about him. I want you to know that Epaphroditus at this moment was probably really encouraged. That the Apostle Paul, right, that big A, capital A Apostle, who's one of the greatest church planters and missionaries throughout the known world at this time, is saying about Epaphroditus that he's a fellow worker, that they are on equal playing fields, that they, when it comes to living out their salvation, that Paul sees him as an equal to him. Right? Paul doesn't take that because he is that great church planter, that he is that pastor, that he's writing scripture, that he's better than Paul or better than Epaphroditus, that he's actually on, on equal planes with him, which should be encouraging for every single one of us, right? Because you guys all have different roles in this church, right? There's some of you that, that count money. There's some of you that vacuum the floors. There's some of you that, that clean the toilets. There's some of you that go out and serve in our community. There's some of you that, that simply show up early to help pray with me before the service begins. And according to Paul here, we are all equals in the mission of God. 
that there's not one ministry that's highlighted bigger than the other. That when it comes to actually advancing the mission of the gospel, your vacuuming has a role, right? Your cleaning has a role. That it's special to God himself and that the Apostle Paul would recognize that. He would recognize that not only for Epaphroditus, but I think for every single one of us. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, right, to serve. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy to be that fellow worker. That's why Paul even calls Epaphroditus what? A soldier. A fellow soldier. One who is disciplined. Who is entering into hard places, hard situations. That's where soldiers go, right? Into the muck of, of, of sin. The muck of other people's lives. Paul is saying, Epaphroditus, you're a soldier. You're entering into those hard places with me. And I thank you for that. There's also an element to all of this, which means that what we do here is also a lot bigger than ourselves. That we're not here just because of, we think it's a good idea, but we're here because we're actually fighting a war. We're fighting a war that often cannot be seen. A spiritual war, if you will. That comes anytime somebody wants to follow Christ, somebody that wants to proclaim the gospel, wants to aid in the proclamation of the gospel, that you are actually entering into a holy war. The Apostle Paul would say this in Ephesians. He says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So to be a Christian, to actually serve others, to be a gospel encourager, means to be a part of the ultimate war that's going on. And, and that's really good news for us. It means that everything we do serves in the aid of that advancement. You know, there's a... There's a... a a professor at a seminary, and I can't remember the, the name of the professor at this moment, but he had said this when it comes to spiritual warfare for every single Christian, that it's always been burned in mind, my mind ever since I heard it, is he said, if the, if the devil cannot make you busy, or if he can't make you doubt, he's going to make you busy. Right? For a lot of us, it's not that we doubt. The reason that's why we're not wanting to get involved is because we're too busy. It's also a strategy what Paul is saying is he's encouraging these gospel encouragers. He's like, don't be too busy. Don't be too busy to just serve and be present and to encourage one another. But let's keep going. What else what also is a gospel encourager? Paul says that Epaphroditus was also a messenger. A messenger. Now that word messenger can also be translated apostle. But don't think of like the office, like capital A apostle, like the apostle Paul was. You know, one of the men who was, um, saw the risen Christ and actually commissioned by God to go plant churches. But this little a, apostle, just means sent one or a messenger. And what Paul was recognizing is that Epaphroditus was sent. And he heeded that call. That he lived his life with really an open hand and attentive ear to be able to follow Christ no matter where he sent him. That's the call in every single one of us. We don't know where we're going to be sent. We don't know where in our community or what relationships God is going to call us to be faithful in. But we need to be attentive that every single one of us is a sent one by God. 
Jesus prayed for this. I hope you know that. Jesus prayed for this before his death and resurrection. He prayed that God the Father would send us into the world just as he sent Jesus into the world. That's not just guys like me. That's not guys just like Paul. But every single one of us are sent ones. Now lastly, we see that he was also a minister to my need. A minister to my need. Once again, Paul is acknowledging something very significant. That Epaphroditus didn't just drop off the money and said, hey, I'm sick, I'm going to get home. And he was out. But rather, even though he was sick, even though there was all these things going on in his life, Epaphroditus actually ministered to the Apostle Paul. He actually served a role in his own devotion, his own walk with Christ. That even the greatest pastor, one of the greatest pastors that ever walked this earth, was served immensely by just a young guy named Epaphroditus. And his name is now remembered by us 2,000 years later because of it. So church, do you know that we are always ministering to one another? That we're always serving one another in that way? Which means that we don't know the impact that that's going to have. Right? We don't know on this side of eternity what the lives of other people are going to have. Right? We don't know necessarily all the details of how somebody's prayer or how somebody's faithfulness or how somebody's encouragement or how somebody's phone calls or how somebody's just time spent with them is actually ministering to their need. And by the way, I don't want it to only come out at a funeral. I want the ways that we're actually encouraging one another, the ways that we're actually ministering to one another to be known now. Paul says that we have to honor such men now. So let's do that. Why not have a gospel culture where we acknowledge the ways that we're ministering to each other now? Right? So if there's somebody in this church that has been encouraging you, right, has been, you've just been watching their life, maybe you've been spending time with them, maybe you've been getting a few meals with them, let them know if that has made a difference in your life. You don't have to wait to their funeral to say it. Say it now. I think Paul is giving us just a, a good model for what it looks like to live in the presence of one another. Now lastly, in verse 30, there's one other gospel encourager that I think Paul begins to let us know about and remind us about in verse 30. When Paul says, again, he repeats himself, talking about Epaphroditus, that he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, why would Paul repeat himself that Epaphroditus nearly died? Why would he do that? He already said that earlier in the text. Now, whenever somebody repeats something, especially in, in Greek language or in Hebrew language, when you repeat something, it's really for emphasis. It's to get your attention on it. And this is what I think Paul's doing is he's highlighting that Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ for us to start thinking about the one who actually died for the work of a Messiah, right? And who was that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, who in order to not only encourage us in the gospel, came and nearly died, but came and died in order to bring us the gospel, in order to bring us the good news, in order to bear the wrath of God on the cross, 
that the greatest encourager that we have is Jesus. And, and we're kind of little gospel encouragers that flow out of that. Because truly, when we look at all these characteristics of a gospel encourager, do you see the perfection of them in Christ? All those different attributes? Think of who had the ultimate compassion for the church? Jesus did. The ultimate one who not only loved the church, but died for the church. Who is the one? Jesus is the one who had the ultimate companionship with God's people who became God incarnate and actually lived amongst us and died for us. He was the ultimate companion. Or Jesus, who is the ultimate brother. right? The ultimate brother for every single one of us. He's our big brother who has allowed the way for every single one of us to be a part of the household of God. And the reason that we can go to God and say our father is because of our big brother, Jesus. Or Jesus, who is the ultimate worker, who fully and forever accomplished the greatest work on the cross. And according to chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians, who is continually at work within us until the day of completion of his return. Or Jesus, who is in, was and is the greatest soldier, who took on the ultimate enemy, who took on the ultimate war, who took on the ultimate battle at the cross, and who is coming again to lead us to the ultimate victory over Satan, sin, and death. Jesus, who is the greatest messenger, right, who came proclaiming the gospel in the kingdom, was at hand. And by the way, Jesus, who is coming back to consummate that message, to consummate the kingdom, to make it forever known. And Jesus, who is the greatest minister, right, the one who intercedes for us, our great mediator, our great high priest, the one who ministers, the one who, as like Psalm 23 points out, is that great shepherd who comes when we're downcast and picks us and leads us to green pastures, makes us lie down beside still waters, that great minister in which we all need. So church, as we just simply end our time in the word this morning, I hope you're encouraged I hope you're encouraged that we have the greatest gospel encourager in Jesus. And now, because of him, we actually get to live out our lives striving to be gospel encouragers amongst ourselves. Looking at these lives of Timothy or looking at the lives of Epaphroditus, these were just men who were following Jesus, responding to the encouragement that they had in Christ and saying, I want to help other people follow him too. That's our goal, church. That's what it means to be a gospel encourager. Let's go ahead and just end there. Let's, let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for just our time in the word this morning and all the ways, Lord, that you have encouraged us that we are not left to our own, that we are not left to... <clears throat> just try to encourage ourselves, but yet you have put people in our lives. Like Paul had Timothy and Epaphroditus, you've put people in our lives right now that encourage us in the work that you are doing. But ultimately, Lord, we know that we have the greatest gospel encourager in the one that brought the gospel, and that is you, Jesus. So God, as we end our time, may we just respond to that, that truth and may it encourage us and help us love you 
more than when we first walked in. In your mighty name we pray, amen.